Hello, everyone. Welcome to the binary episode of the podcast for this week. Before we get into the topics, we'll cover the spot the volume solution for yesterday's episode, which I must say had some really quick solutions. I think there were some replies to the tweet that were correct before the show even went live. So, uh, you know, very quick solutions on that. But Z, I'll let you cover what it is for uh, for those who are who are curious on it. Yeah, pretty quick. And apparently there was a hacker news post that talked about not exact. Well, it talked about the fundamental of uh, fundamental issue here. Um, that being the present or basically the difference in the maximum negative number, or I guess the minimum negative number of negative one twenty eight versus or. Now I probably go have to look it up because I'm not confident in my own numbers. But on one end, negative like one twenty eight, I'm pretty sure, and then on the other end, it's positive one twenty seven for a single byte. But that extends out. There's that one number difference. Um, and so the problem is line five on this. So it's reading data from a socket. Uh, has its max packet or has its buffer created, and then just reads from the socket some integer. Uh. The issue is when it goes to check the length, it checks, oh, if the length's zero, make it positive. How do they do that? By multiplying it by minus one. Now, this mathematically works. Uh, you know, anybody kind of reading that on a logical, you see the intent there, take a negative number, make it positive. The problem has to do with what I was just saying about um, uh, kind of the asymmetry and how many numbers are positive versus how many numbers can be stored as a negative. Uh, so what happens is when you take that maximum negative number and multiply it by minus one, due to how the binary works out and the truncation of any bits that end up spilling over beyond the sign bit, multiplying it by minus one gets you the same value when you're multiplying that one value, the maximum uh, negative integer. So that would be... Uh, and if you're not familiar with two's complement, um, I, I don't know how much detail I really want to go into talking about uh, how that ends up working, but um, essentially the maximum negative integer is one, the, the sign bit, and then everything else will be zero. And the minimum negative, uh, negative one, is always just every bit is uh, so when you to flip a number, you would negate it and then add one. And of course, another thing, now that I'm talking about it, I'm not entirely confident if it's negate and add one or, uh, yeah, it is negate and add one. Anyway, um, it basically comes down to problems in the math in how the computer is doing the math. I won't dive into many more details, but... Bottom I'll leave line it here at that. Is computer it's, math is hard. Gotta remember. Don't want to misspeak on it, really. Yeah. Well, something I liked about this challenge is it's actually a pretty realistic scenario because, I mean, I kind of learned this recently. When you're dealing with sockets and doing networking and stuff, it may seem weird if you're looking at this example. Like, why would it be reading the length before and then using that for a read? Um, when you're reading like large amounts of data, this isn't really an issue I encounter when using sockets for like gener generally small packets. But when you're getting into like kilobytes and megabytes of data, um, you kind of have to send that length first to have a reliable read because 
you know, I just said computer math is hard, but networking is even more hard because you have to deal with like uh, packet loss and just buffering and all that stuff. So this is a pretty realistic scenario. Um, it is, but I will say like in general, if you're writing code, reject invalid data. Don't try and fix it because that, that tends to be where you see bugs getting introduced. You see a negative length, reject it. Um, it, it's basically that simple. If, if it were to just get rejected, there wouldn't be an issue. It just happens to be they tried to fix the length by doing multiply by minus one. Oh, um, just like the MySQL bug yesterday. Same kind of idea where you, uh, where yeah, we talked about, um, uh, yeah, but I mean, it just comes down to it's trying to fix the input rather than rejecting bad input. And in general, that is that's adding complexity that will eventually end up biting you. The other thing is for a length, you don't need you shouldn't be using a signed integer. Ideally, you just use an unsigned length because you you should never there should never be a scenario where you have a negative length, really. On the um, other hand, um, having a negative length is like just kind of a trigger that, hey, something is very wrong. Um, and you actually kind of have a check on that. Like if you shouldn't be reaching that length at all, ever, um, and they do the max packet thing. Um, I mean, in theory, you know, if it's unsigned, the max packet would be sufficient. But there is an argument to be made when it comes to using signed values as a bit of a warning system. Uh, to see those see things become negative when they get too big, um, if because if something, if you've got a number that should get large enough, uh, to overflow in an integer and make it negative, you're probably you probably shouldn't even be using integers in the first place. You should be using a longer a larger number at that point. So there are some arguments we made around using uh signed values as a sort of warning system. I don't know if that really makes sense here, but there is an argument that exists on that. Yeah, but like you said, if you are using the negative length as an error indicator, then you should be bailing out. <laughs> so, yeah, just kind of a something to look out for. But yeah, so we'll move into some of our topics for today. Uh, first up, we have a post about an overview of zero days seen in the wild in the last seven years. This is based off of uh, Project Zero's tracker. Uh, they have like a spreadsheet where they track zero days they found in the wild. Originally, I thought that was just ones that P0 found in the wild, but Z corrected me yesterday. Um, they they do keep it updated for, for other things that are found too. Um, nothing super surprising in the in the post. Um, it, it might be a bit of a shock. So, I mean, we'll guess, I guess we'll get into so what some of the statistics are before uh, giving opinions on them. But yeah, so they found that um, first, they talk about products. So Microsoft had half of all of the in the wild uh, zero days that were found. They affected Microsoft products, which may seem like a bit of a shock when you look into it. But then when you realize how diverse Microsoft is and how many products they have and their market share, um, then it kind of starts to make sense, right? Like you have Microsoft SharePoint, SharePoint, we see a lot of stuff in Windows. Office, uh, they have a lot of different product uh, yeah, uh, types that get attacked. And a lot of things that are being used by, like, your general user. Um, 
one thing, it is kind of a notable absence that there isn't any just call out of like Linux here. You'll see Google, which I believe includes Android, but you don't see anything does, yeah. like Linux being called out directly. And it's, I highly doubt it's the case that there were no vulnerabilities against Linux seen in the wild. Uh, but more either on the fact that uh, whoever reported or were reporting on these things just weren't reporting on seeing something Linux saying. Um, that's maybe one part of it. Another part of it is generally when we talk about things being in the wild, a lot of times, well, we at least when we cover them, it tends to be things that are also client side, not exclusively because we will talk about like, um, I mean, the SharePoint, as Spectre just mentioned, is case where technically that's on a server being run, being exploited. Um, and it is kind of notable here because, like, Linux has a pretty significant market share when it comes to server side. Plenty of servers are out there running Linux. Um, how often is privilege escalation done with a Linux LP versus, you know, just abusing some privileged application? Not sure. I don't have the stats on that. But it is kind of notable there. Um, and yeah, I mean, seeing Microsoft at 50% did surprise me a bit until I scrolled down and saw that that was including Windows and Internet Explorer and Office, and obviously any Windows kernel bugs, uh, Defender and everything else. Like, there's a ton of stuff fitting under Microsoft, whereas the other companies like Chrome and Android for Google, that's a lot smaller up an attack surface. Now that I look at it a bit more, one thing that does surprise me a little bit is how Adobe has a higher share of zero days than Google. Just because, like, Adobe, you know, so they they mainly account for Flash and Reader, Flash being, like, 85% of the Adobe bugs. Flash has been kind of dead for a while but there now, there were a lot of Flash bugs for a time. Oh, yeah, Flash, Flash was a zero-day was... farm. Yeah, like, that's kind of the key. Like, it's Flash at 85%, and that's, this is in the last seven years, so that would have been on the tail end of Flash, but still... Mm, that's true. Still long enough for Flash to have made a very significant impact on that, whereas, like, Chrome has never been the bug farm. Um, it's always been, you know, the PDF reader, or just Adobe PDF, rather than actually being... Chrome as the main target. So I, I think it kind of makes sense. Adobe was just super popular. And of course, Reader comes in there too um, as being a somewhat common target. Good for hitting like enterprises where there's a lot of PDF sharing and stuff going around. So that one makes sense. But yeah, I mean, the, the targets here, like most, for the most part, it's not really that surprising. You see a lot of like browser stuff, Chrome, Firefox, WebKit. That's expected. Um, Android, iOS. And uh, yeah, like you said, the only notable absence is like Linux, um, where like Windows and Windows kernel is included in that list. And I think it's, I think a lot of that comes down to not so much that Linux isn't being exploited in the wild or there aren't Linux zero days floating out there. I think it's more just the case that they're harder to capture and find from like a third party context because Windows. Like, there's a lot of, like, I think a lot of the ways they get this rep these reports is through doing, uh, like, crash collection and whatnot. 
So like Windows has yeah, a lot of telemetry also... in it. A lot of antiviruses have telemetry in it. So you'll see like exploit samples making it to antivirus companies and stuff, right? Whereas on Linux, I don't think that channel for getting crash reports back to the vendor is really there to the same degree. So I think that's why there's a bit of a bias where you're not really seeing Linux show up in these charts except for Android. Yeah, I mean, um, because Android does have that crash report. There is endpoint protection that deals with Linux, but that's going to be deployed on a lot fewer machines compared with like the number of machines running Windows or just running an antivirus on Windows. Um, yeah, it's definitely going to be a smaller group. Um, I guess the other kind of surprising thing out of this was they looked at the average patch time between discovery and patching. Of course, the standout one to call out is Qualcomm at 167 days between discovery and patching. Yeah, um, that doesn't but, really surprise me. <laughs> I, mean, it, it's, I mean, it's hardware to take. It has a longer cycle. Microsoft at 41. Google at 5 was a little bit surprising. Uh, I mean, I guess not surprising. More like, you know, good on them. I think 5 is completely fair. The best one on here was Cisco at 2. Um... Most of them all, like Apple at 9, Adobe at 8.2, well, 2 and several more digits. I don't know why they went so specific on Adobe and no nobody else. I guess they do have a few others, but I don't know why they did that. Like, measuring it down to that uh, accuracy just <laughs> feels... Down to the, like, microsecond of the day. <laughs> <laughs> it feels that way. Uh, but yeah, I guess it... I did misspeak by saying nobody else. You can see at least four others on there, or three others on there. Um, but yeah, most of them are all in that 10-day range. It's Microsoft at 41, and that probably has more to do with the fact they push more on, like, Patch Tuesday being a monthly thing. Oh Yeah, so uh, this has always been something that I haven't really been a huge fan of by Microsoft, and I guess this is a good launch point to talk about it when we're looking at these well, I, we had a discussion about like Patch Tuesday and making that choice a couple weeks ago, we, I think. I think it was longer than that, but yeah, we have certainly had that discussion before. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm generally not a big fan of like pushing off fixes to consolidate them in these like Patch Tuesdays. Um, I mean, I, I kind of get why they do it. It has trade-offs, you know, obviously they feel it's worth it, but yeah, I mean... Overall, though, this this chart isn't really that surprising to me. Microsoft being at 41 days, I, I don't think that's egregious, but it is high compared to other companies that are on the chart. Qualcomm, like you said, I think that is a bit of a special case because Qualcomm is more on the hardware side of things. And the other thing is, too, I mean, Qualcomm's just never really been that great on a security standpoint. They've had some really meme issues Um They've, there's also been some complications when it has come to dealing with reports and fixing issues. So, I mean, them being the worst here, it's, you know, pretty, pretty straightforward. Like, yeah, I, I, I mean, I surprise. I do think a lot's explained by the hardware aspect. Just it's got a longer cycle. It's still quite long. Um, and maybe it is some stuff they could have patched quicker. Oh, no. Micro on the Microsoft point, uh, you're comparing with everybody else on this list. And it's, the thing is, like, we were just talking about how Microsoft has a huge attack surface. They also have a huge development team. 
But, like, I could imagine there's more of an overhead also on kind of getting things out and collaborating to fix things. When it comes to the whole Patch Tuesday, like I said, I think we've had that discussion in the past already. I I kind of just see it as there are trade-offs with it, but it's a decision Microsoft has made. And I think it's a decision that you can at least argue on behalf of. I'm not the biggest fan either. I'm not that against it, though. Um, but yeah, I but do it does feel explain like... their showing in this chart, so that's yes. why I wanted to bring. Yeah, it. I believe that's a, going to be a big part of it is does the fact that they intentionally delay patching. Beyond that, though, they also just have a lot more products than pretty much anybody else on this list. Yeah, just by the nature of the number of products they have, that that makes it more difficult. So yeah, that's yeah, a fair fair thing to point out and i guess you mentioned like compared with everybody else on this list and this is a choice list place where they've had these odings in the wild um you can kind of think they're like there are going to be plenty of companies that aren't prominent enough to make this list and have nowhere near that patch response time yeah yeah so I, one thing I would like to see, and unfortunately you don't really get that with this post, it'd be interesting, instead of just looking at it as a whole, like summing up the last seven years and then doing, you know, charts based on the zero days that were found, it'd be nice to see a timeline over the last seven years to see like, okay, how many zero days were found in this product in 2016 compared to 2017 or 2019? You know what I mean? So seeing like a, a like a line graph of where product zero days are being discovered and trying to see if there's any trends that would be very interesting to look at i think and the data is there like the spreadsheet is there you can go and do that um it's just they didn't do that here but like i think that would provide some useful insights too so you know maybe somebody can can do that or you know because i think there would be things to talk about there too but you know that's not in this post but that was just something i was thinking about while we were going through the stats anyway not too much more in that post. Um, like I said, not, not too much surprising. Just gives you a solid look at where the security landscape has been in the last uh, seven years. All right, so uh, we'll get into some of our exploits. Up first, we have a blog post from Sonar Source on Squirrel Lang, which they state is an open source interpreted language for game development. Apparently, it's used in CSGO, which uh, I like learned when I read the post. I I'm not really familiar with Squirrel Lang, but I also don't do too much in, in the game dev area. Like, I don't well, do mods or anything. So. so it's a little bit more than just game dev. Obviously, useful with game dev. It's kind of a similar market. Um, are you familiar with Lua? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's yeah, it's pretty much the same sort of market. Dev quite a bit. Um, except you get objects. You don't have to, like, hack at it with tables. Um, Squirrel Lang kind of gives you a bit more object-oriented programming features you know proper objects but it's kind of competing in that same realm of being an embeddable language uh so that makes it nice for some games uh but yeah, I guess so what it's primarily used for in games um just kind of extending on that for people who might not be familiar with lua's usage in games either it's really useful for like higher level scripting with doing like plugins or mods or just generally like UI stuff, like stuff in that area. Um, so in CSGO, for example, that's where it's used. It's used for custom game modes and maps 
which you can download off the workshop and, and host servers that run it. So like, obviously, because that language can be written by mod developers and it can be installed on servers, it has to be sandboxed or else malicious maps can attack the, the host machine if they get too much access. Um, and, and that's basically what the end game is here, is escaping the VM that's used for Squirrel Lang in order to pull off that attack. Um, but yeah, sorry, go ahead, Z. Yeah, well, I was just going to dive into the details of the actual vulnerability here, which is a out-of-balance access um, due to confusing or being confused about whether or not it should be accessing the fields or the methods of a class. That one's a little bit weird, but what's going on is kind of straightforward, actually. Um, internally, when you kind of declare the class, it's going to be backing that up with some internal data structures, like with how it actually compiles it down effectively. Um, so when you have a field, it's going to, when you declare a field, it's going to have um, a separate kind of internal array called underscore default values. And every field is going to... Um, have its value or default value in that location uh well pointed to by the default values right similarly you create a method it's getting pointed to inside of the underscore methods array um and then there is a separate array called members or underscore members and that are not an array sorry it's a separate hash map and that one is how they get the index into those arrays um, so you'll have your members. I think they have this visualized somewhere. Or I thought they did. Um, anyway, you'll have your members hash map and all of the fields and all of the methods belonging to that class will be in that hash map, can be looked up in there, and the value that gets out will be the index in its respective array. And then it just uses the first byte and specifically two bits out of the first or most significant byte of that value to indicate whether or not it is a field and should be looked up. This index should be looked up in the default values, right? Or if it's a method and should be looked up in the methods array. So the confusion happens by being able to trick it that when you end up calling for an access on a method, it thinks it's actually accessing a field. Um, and that ends up happening because it's storing this metadata in that same index value, but it's not preventing you from creating more methods than what fit inside of there. Um, so what they do is the member, uh, a field has this uh, 0x02 as it started, specifically looking for that 2-bit of the uh, most significant byte, whereas a method will use the 1-bit and just will have that set. So if you can create... 0x to 0000000, just a lot of methods, the index that it's going to expect is just naturally going to have that field bit set. So later when it actually calls, like, is this a field? Yes, it is, even though it's not. Um, so that ends up creating the, uh, effectively a confusion there, uh, where it will access, you know, way outside the boundaries of where that default value is actually set up, at least if you create a class set only has one field, but, um, you know, like, however many methods in it, um, it'll end up accessing whatever index that, that, uh, that method was at, um, out of bounds, effectively. 
Um, and it will, so the access, it, it will mask out those two bits that it uses for metadata. It'll mask those out. So the actual access out of bounds isn't all that far out. Um, like if you're accessing like what would be like the, um, uh, I guess two millionth hex or two millionth and fifth hex, um, then it will only access out of bounds like five indexes, which is fairly reasonable. So what they were able to do to actually attack this is through a little bit of uh, he feng shui is putting um, some user controlled data next to the default value. So the out of bound access goes to more attacker controlled data had a attacker controlled object there. And effectively what they did was they end up tricking the access to returning a array that started at null 0x0 zero zero and had 0x zero FFFF um, all the way up through uh, 64 bits of data, basically giving them access to read write the entire address space as this field. Um, and then from that point, of course, it's fairly easy to find some function pointer to overwrite and get your generic code execution. Overall, like, I thought it was a cool bug, but it's one of those cases where, like, storing that metadata in line is always dangerous. Um, it kind of makes sense. Of, uh... They're trying to save memory, but it is a dangerous thing to do. I mean, again, I'm, I'm circling back to something I've said before with these types of issues, but by trying to embed it directly in the value instead of just using a separate object, you are penny pinching on memory. You know, it's not like the 1990s where we have uh, this really is an heavily embedded language. Ram. Yeah, I, but that still. makes a difference here. Like, I understand trying to penny pinch more when those pennies add up and actually do make a difference when like they advertise on how much memory they take. Um, like I get it. I also agree with you. Like in general, we have, we generally have more than enough memory. It does add up though. And I, I get where they're coming from in this case. It's just like, you need to take care when you do that, that you're not giving generic access to basically the whole thing. Um, and allowing that other value to overflow into it. So we can kind of revisit a topic or a theme that we explored last week when we were covering, covering a WebKit bug, because you can classify this vulnerability in two different ways. Um, they classify it as an out-of-bounds access. Really, what this boils down to is a type confusion, because they're using you know that most significant bit or the most significant byte as a type and the user is able to control that type um because they have full access to the value so yeah i again i'm kind of thinking like maybe this would be more apt to describe it as a type confusion um just because like when you see out of bounds access you're thinking like you know bad size calculation or something like that whereas this is more of a just the user shouldn't be able to control the type. So well, they're yeah, another one of those bugs where you can kind of go like I I can see both sides. Um, but yeah, yeah to mean, me this I, this is more of a type confusion. I'm not sure if I'd really call it type confusion, just because um like I do get where you're coming from, like but it's technically accessing a I believe SQ object in both cases. 
Um, like, I don't believe it's actually changing the object type at all. Um, but it they're is both what it it's is expecting. changing the container that's accessed. The con- yes, exactly. It's changing the container that's accessed so that you end up accessing out of bounds. But it's not confusing the type as would be necessary for type confusion. I think that's the distinction that would make me not want to call it a type confusion. Like, I get where you're coming from. There is a confusion happening. But it's more of like, you know, variable access confusion, I guess. Oh. Yeah, it's a little bit tricky. It's it's a weird and cool bug. Cause yeah, it's, it's a great bug. Oh. Yeah, it's not something you're going to run into in a lot of cases. Like, it's it's kind of unique to how the application is structured. I mean, I say that there has been similar issues like this in other products. Like, don't get me wrong. Um, the PS4 kernel actually had a very similar bug to this. It was it was the basis for the 4.05 issue. Um, but yeah, it's just not something you come across super often compared to other bug classes. So yeah, that's that's why I really like this blog post. Yeah, and it was and well I think done they did a good post. job. Exactly. I think they did a really good job explaining the issue. I really love when they do these diagrams and stuff just to highlight the the way it's architected to somebody who's not familiar. Just, yeah, overall, a really, a really good post. All right, so next up, we have a topic that turns the tables on attacking Linux through the kernel instead of using the kernel or attacking the kernel. Um, this one is a kernel bug that leads to the exploitation of set UID binaries through the crash dump mechanism. So um, they kind of go into some background here for those who might not be aware of how core dumps are handled. Um, first, like they, they focus in on this dumpable attribute. So every process in Linux gets a dumpable attribute, which can be one of three values. Uh, it can be zero, where it's not dumpable at all. It can be one, where it's dumpable. Or it can get this special two identifier, uh, which is called set you would safe, where it's dumpable, but only if the core pattern which the user can control, is an absolute path or a pipe. Um, well, the problem is the exec theesis call that eventually calls this begin new exec function uh, will set a dumpable value on a new process if the privileges are changed so that the real UID is equivalent to the effective UID and the current uh, group ID is set to the effective group ID. Well, so, so basically, if you're running a child process, it's running as uh, like root, for example. It's, well... I don't like I don't think the problem here is really with exact or not exactly obviously they're they're able to abuse this but it makes sense like it's deciding what the dumpable thing is based on is this a suid binary where it's running with more privileges than the user actually has in which case it's not dumpable um versus it being dumpable when uh, you know, you're running it. You're same effect. The effective user is the one who's running the program, or the actual user is the one that's running the program. Like it makes sense that it's doing this. I don't know. I'm not sure if you really intended to, but it sounds like you were kind of just putting blame as like it shouldn't be overriding dumpable, and it makes sense that it's not letting you dump things. Um, so, not, oh, go ahead. I believe the problem there is that they should have been using uh, the set you would safe core dump value instead of just setting it as like one as dumpable. Um, now they're not totally clear on that in explaining what they like what they think the um, 
patch should be, because if the core pattern was an absolute safe directory, then this attack wouldn't work, right? So, and that would be enforced by the set you would safe value. So that's what I believe the bug is here, just the way I'm reading it, is that they're setting it to the dumpable value, not to the set you would safe dumpable value. Um, okay, so I'm not exactly there, sure but... where the say you would save dumpable value should actually be used. I'd assume that that was actually more of a special value. Um, but the key thing here, and this is what it relies on, is the fact that the program running, um, like a sewer, if you just have a sewage binary and it executes another binary, that isn't sufficient to turn it into a dumpable. Um, what's needed is that sewer binary needs to change. Like, it needs to call secuid0, assuming root. Um, it needs to change all of its IDs to zero. They all need to be consistent in order for it to match that first flag. Um, like, it does rely on that condition also. It's not as easy as just any suid binary is vulnerable if it starts another binary. Yeah, it needs that path to be taken where the, like the, the UID and GID need to be equal. Uh, to the sorry, the the real one needs to be effect uh equal to the effective one. Just wanted to clarify there. Uh, it gets complicated when you're talking about like UID and GID in Linux because there's like three different types. You have like real, effective, and I think there's another one that I can't remember the name of. But yeah, like like you're saying, they have to be equivalent for that path to be taken for the process to be dumpable. Um, the other thing that is important there too is the fact that the process owner's permissions will be used to create core dumps that are generated. Um, so that's where the the privesque angle kind of comes into play there. Um, yeah, so and I guess we should touch on what the actual issue is here too. Which, yeah, exactly. Um, effectively, you have the situation where you can have a root process that can create a core dump anywhere, since the user can control that core pattern as root. Um, so it's technically an like a arbitrary root file, right? Though the contents aren't totally controlled because it is a core dump. Uh, it's not like you can just write whatever you want. Um, you can try to get control over contents that are in the core dump, uh, which is what this attack relies on. Um, one way you can do that is by setting an environment variable, for example. Um, so how they abuse this is they note that the log rotate uh, D daemon directory can be written to with a core dump. And the parsing for configuration files there is very loose. Um, so like, even if there's a bunch of garbage data, it'll just skip past that until it recognizes a valid configuration. Um, so if you can control any contents going into the core dump, um, which you can for like an environment variable, you can smuggle in a log rotate configuration and get that read, have it execute a reverse shell or, or something to that effect to get a privilege escalation. Yeah. And that's, um, um just clarified that's because in log rotate, the configuration can include a first run command which effectively is code execution or script execution from there. So really straightforward. You set first action to whatever you want. Um, and yeah. you'll get code execution. I guess one detail that's kind of been skipped over here is the fact that you do need to um, be able to crash the second program that ran um, in order to, to get a core dump. dump happen. Yeah. yeah, you need core dumps happen when a program crashes that, you know, does these permission checks, dumpable. And all that. Um, and they had a fairly reliable way of doing that, and that's just using R limits, uh, saying the R limit CPU to zero. Um, effectively meant that as soon as they started up the another program, it would be killed, and it would send the appropriate signal to get it dumped. 
So that was one trick. Um, that works since uh, commit from August of 2019. On older systems or systems running an older kernel, that won't work because they do have checks against zero for setting resource limits. So in that case, the other trick that they had for using older uh, attacking older systems is by sending a sig quit system or a sig sig quit signal, um, which can be done through the TTY driver. Uh, and this is a little bit weird, I thought, because I wasn't really aware of this caveat, but generally, like inside of a shell or whatever, you you can't send a sig quit single signal to a higher privilege process, right? You can't just tell it to crash itself. But through the TTY driver, um, it allows that signal to go through, even if you're sending to a higher privileged process. So it's just kind of this, I guess, uh, subversion where it just kind of walks around um, like other places where that privilege level is enforced through TTY. It just isn't. So that's another trick they use is they can just send a, a sig quit character um, through the TTY or terminal subsystem and they can cause that crash and trigger the attack. Yeah, I mean, it feels somewhat justified because usually the person sitting behind the terminal who started a program makes sense that they could also, like, kill it. Um, so I, I kind of get where they're coming from on that one. That's it. On a whole, like, it's really just a logic issue over how do you deal with those sewage binaries that end up starting another program themselves, especially those that take over the UID and UID. We, we keep referring only to... Uh, you would thereby believe it. Actually, I might be mistaken there. Did it have to take GUID also? It did, yeah. Or I, um, yeah. I believe they, if you look at the code yeah, snippet, they pasted set it. And thank you, yeah. set G. But yeah, I mean, the big thing there is just like, I don't, I can't really recall any other instances where I've seen a kernel bug that's being used to attack user land to get a privilege escalation. That's kind of a weird route to take and you know turns it on its head so that was that was kind of the fun aspect too yeah i mean i like this post for that um and i mean it's just it's a fun little more of a logic issue than crazy memory corruption stuff yeah that said we do have a memory corruption for linux as our next topic um this is a project zero post from jan horn on a linux kernel bug discovered in the tty subsystem so i guess we're also continuing on the uh, the terminal subsystem too um this bug is a race condition due to bad locking in the tioc spgrp ioctl for setting the process group um basically when modifying the res uh, the reference counts of the old and new process groups they try to do locking by taking a lock on the TTY object. I, it's a spin lock, I believe. Um, but that's not sufficient because pseudo-terminal pairs are a little bit special in the way that both ends of a pseudo-terminal pair can access the same state even if they have different TTY structs. So because the different ends don't use the same lock, but they're accessing the same memory, the, the locking pattern there is effectively useless in that case. Um, because it's only preventing current current access on one end of the pair, not both. Um, so that can cause the reference counts to become corrupted, where the old PID object could have its reference count uh, decremented one time, uh, one too many times, and the new PID on either end incremented one too many times. Um, with that decrement, there's the use after free condition there, because when the ref count hits zero prematurely, uh, it'll get freed while the PID is still being referenced. Um, the use after free is a bit tricky to exploit, though, in this case. Because the PID object is allocated in a special cache that's used for um, only like three different objects. It's used for PID, 
uh, sec file and epitem objects, which I'm not familiar really with those latter two. Um, but and the situation here is a UAF write, as I understand, because you can use the ref count field to cause memory corruption on any overlapped object. Um, but because it's not in a generic cache, you're kind of limited in the objects that you can like a reallocation primitive. It's kind of hard to get a target object that's useful overlapped. Um, so you you need a target object where control over that ref count field yields something useful. Um, and it seemed to be difficult to do that with the objects in this cache, though he does point out it should be possible, but painful. Because, for example, um, you could get corruption on a pointer field, being the buff field in the sec file object, but you'd end up corrupting the upper 32 bits of the object, not the lower 32 bits. And that is much tougher to exploit because... Um, yeah, like not being able to control those lower 32 bits, you would have to do some serious heat manipulation to get that to work out. Um, the strategy he ultimately went with here was a somewhat common one in this situation, and that's forcing a page reclaim so that the page that contains the UAF object gets reclaimed by a different cache. Um, you could go with like the generic cache, but the cache you went with here was the page table cache, and that allows a much easier reallocation primitive um, it does take some effort to do that also, because you need to force that page to get flushed by allocating a bunch of objects to occupy that page, get the target object allocated as the last object, trigger the UAF, then frigger, uh, free all those other objects um, to eventually get that page release triggered to get it back to the page allocator. So there is some serious heat manipulation going on with that strategy too, um, but I think it's a little bit easier than trying to get something useful by controlling the upper 32 bits of a kernel pointer. That's, I mean, that's it's tough. a bit easier, but it also um, leaves you in a much better position because once it's freed, you can reclaim that with, you know, pretty much anything that the kernel uses. Like you have just so many more options for a stable exploit. Yeah. So uh, basically... Uh, once Jan had that uh, ability to get a page reclaim going, they overlapped the pit object with a page table. Uh, specifically, he was able to smash the least significant bits of a page table entry, which could be used to enable read-write flags on a page that's supposed to only be read, for example. So you could use that to gain write access to a set you had binaries text segment and use that to privilege escalate. So this is kind of another thing where you're using a kernel corruption primitive to attack from the user side. A little bit um, because you again you're kind of attacking the set you would binaries um, and this is a very interesting attack scenario because ultimately it never hijacks control of the instruction pointer in the kernel nor does it require any kind of leak or anything to chain with due to corruption being an increment um, and as such jan points out here that mitigations like cfi wouldn't have done anything in this case because you're never touching the control flow um, you're just using your corruption primitive to corrupt some page table entries um, that you can use and uh, a second stage of the attack. Um, he does point out some mitigations that could be useful in preventing bugs like this. I mean, the most notable one there just being mitigating the attack surface so that you can't hit pseudo terminals in the first place, because most components on the system do not need access to that. Um, it's just kind of an unnecessary risk to expose that. Um, but some of the other things suggested were like uh, randomizing structure layouts to impact the reliability and mitigating UAFs in general by using something similar to memory tagging to tag pointers on the type of object it's supposed to be. So there's a lot more nuance in there, and he goes into detail on a, 
a few different defenses there, which I'm kind of skipping through because it would be impossible to cover them all here. Um, as as per usual, Project Zero, it's a pretty dense blog post. It covers a lot. Um, yeah, it's a really yeah, good post, I mean, though, to give a read-off for some of the defenses. Um, talks basically about what they are, what they would or would not actually be able to do. Um, you already somewhat called this out, but the fact that this doesn't corrupt um, or doesn't hijack control flow. And he calls this out in the post regarding control flow integrity and Basically, CFI would have done nothing here. And in the last you know, few months, I've been in a few discussions where it comes to like, oh, CFI is going to kill so many exploits. And I mean, in the kernel, more dead oriented attacks has just been very natural, made a lot of sense because the kernel holds on to a lot of very important data. But you don't really need code execution there. You just need to corrupt the data. Like even with code execution, you're usually still going to want to get a user land process privilege rather than trying to do everything as kernel code. Um, so it's made sense there. But in general, like these sorts of data oriented attacks you know, are generally becoming more prevalent. And as control flow integrity becomes more prevalent, will be, I guess, more of a default option. Uh, so I did just want to, I guess, call that out here, that this is one of those cases where DFI would have basically done well, very little. But, you know, data attacks are important to be learning about if you're not already uh, abusing them. Yeah, run, running code in the kernel is very overrated. Uh, I learned this lesson the hard way when we were trying to do some PS4 stuff and we were trying to write a kernel rootkit. And we just learned, like, we got to take this stuff to user land because this really sucks trying to do this in kernel. But, um, yeah, I mean, like you said, the common strategy, even if you do get code execution in something like the Linux kernel, is literally just to jump to a function that changes your process privileges and then return. You're not doing anything crazy. It's like a one-call chain. Um, and, you know, like Amy said in chat, like, data attacks are just, that's the way of the future. It's it's a lot more reliable. Um, and it gets around mitigations like CFI. And, yeah, which and revisiting I revisiting mean, CFI a bit. I agree. It's not really the mitigation to be worried about. I mean, it's going to change part. things as we see it. Hardware enforced CFI is going to change aspects of exploitation. No doubt about that. And it is coming. Um, but at the same time, there are other options. I mean, even uh, obviously we're talking about kernel right now, but there's this. Um, there was the SUID exploit that we covered earlier in the year. Um, and that one, one of the attack options was um, attacking some of the data that SUID used. I believe it was the log file or like a... Yeah, I'm pretty sure you basically got, you got control of the log file as data and then had your output go... Um, I, I think they targeted log rotate too, actually. So we were... Uh, just talking about with the other one, uh, they targeted a log rotate config. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of more of a data oriented thing in user land. A lot of more complex applications have some sensitive data that you might be able to abuse. Um, out of chat, there was what CFI like CET. Yeah, CET is the form of CI, I guess Spectre already got on this, but yeah, uh, CFI control flow integrity, CET Intel CET control was a control flow enforcement technology I believe is. Yeah. And on Windows, they've started implementing that, giving uh, raw protection, so protecting the backwards 
uh, it would be called backward edge control flow integrity versus forward edge being all your forward jumps. I don't believe Windows has protection on those just yet, although that is where something like Clang CFI, GCC as CFI, those do the forward edge protection. Um, yeah, from, I believe CET is planned to do both. Oh, I believe C, it, it CET does it. Windows backwards. implementation does not. Um, but CET supports it. Um, yeah. Like, it, it's there. Windows just hasn't implemented it yet. Um, at least that's my understanding. I haven't, you know, double-checked on that one. But I believe the case is Windows specifically and their implementation. But yeah, CET supports forward and backward edge. Yeah. And when I was talking about mitigations and saying CFI is not the one to be worried about, um, I was just kind of jumping back to that discussion where you were saying people were worried about CFI being like an exploit killer. If you want to attach a mitigation to being an exploit killer, attach it to memory tagging because that's coming and it's going to be way more impactful than CFI is going to be. Um, memory tagging is going to impact memory corruption across the board. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not going tagging... to kill it entirely. There are some problems with it like when you get into the granularity uh, is like the primary one that you could attack but it's it is generally going to kill a lot of bugs and a lot of bug classes yeah i mean memory taking does actually provide a little bit of a cfi so it's kind of like uh with pack how pack uh pointer authentication over on ios it provides a degree of cfi but it also kind of does some other things maybe no pointer overwrites in general hardware and it's you know some sorts of out about access like it protects against more than just cfi but then it's not quite the same strength as you know a shadow stack or something for backward edge um so i mean memory tagging yeah like it's it's weird i guess i'll put it that way because it's not as strong in some ways but it does more yeah, it's going to be more like wide sweeping against different types of bugs and stuff. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Google is pushing for that. Um, Andre gave a, a talk recently at the Linux Security Summit, and there's already been support added in the Linux kernel for um, memory tagging. Now, that is taking advantage of like ARM memory tagging. So in this case, like this blog post and this attack, I believe is targeting like x86 memory tagging. I haven't really seen much on the front for x86 for memory tagging in terms of hardware support. I don't know if that's coming. I don't know if Intel is actively working on that or AMD is actively working on that. I just haven't really seen much. It seems to be more like the mobile space, like ARM has really been tunneling in on the mitigations and they've always kind of been like that. ARM has always been ahead of the curve, I guess, on mitigations. But I eventually it will come to x86, I have no doubt, because... Like I said, it's a strong mitigation. I, I, I would be I shocked. I remember if hearing it something about, soon. and yeah, it is a strong mitigation. So I, I do still kind of expect it. But I do remember seeing a discussion once, and I'd have to go check this. That there might have actually been, or part of the reason it has been seen is purely because of the spec and backwards compatibility. Not basically something in there disallowed actually using those bits for other purposes, like, um, like memory taking tends to do. So. I don't know. It sounds like there was some reason that we haven't seen it, but I'm not familiar enough. I will also, since we were talking about the uh, talk from Linux Security Summit, uh, since that's already up on YouTube, um, I will also include that in our description below. 
Yeah. And Sarsic asked, how does memory tagging work? So this is um, this is actually something that's covered in the talk very well. Basically, they use some bits out of the pointer to store a tag. And there's like a kind of like a shadow table that keeps track of different memory locations and what their tag is supposed to be. And the CPU will check um, when it does any memory accesses. It'll check that tag to make sure that it matches what it's supposed to match. And if it doesn't, then it aborts. Um, so it's it's a fairly um, straightforward concept on how it works. Obviously, the fact that it's hardware implemented is very important because doing this in software would be absolutely horrible for performance. Um, but yeah, the CPU is responsible for doing that. Um, there are some weaknesses in the way that it's uh, implemented because for practicality reasons, the granularity, I think, is like 16 bytes or something. So... A ver like if you have an overflow and you can control uh the other thing memory tagging enforces is the the like memory contents so because of the granularity there are some weak spots in memory tagging which will probably be tightened over time as the performance overhead gets lower and lower but yeah i mean the the essence of memory tagging is the idea that pointers can have tags in them uh, and it's it's a very interesting technology for sure. And I would recommend giving this talk a listen. It yeah, was a great one of the talk. best talks that I've listened to. Yeah, it was really good. So, um, yeah, if you have some time, put, put that on for sure. Yeah, and um, we also, so it wasn't exactly about this in the more practical case, but we did also talk about the Morpheus champ. Actually, we've talked about it a couple times. I'm having trouble finding which episodes we, we talked, talked about, about it a it long time ago well so. we talked about it earlier this year when they did the update and like it was tested uh i think bug crowd had it up there and they had some uh dod had like a challenge against it um and had no problems with it it did memory taking it did a bunch of other things too but i'm pretty sure i went into explaining kind of how that works a little bit more um in that talk although i talked about the other or in that episode Unfortunately, I'll see if I can get the link in our show notes. I don't have it on me right now. Yeah. So jumping back to this topic a little bit, the vulnerability is relatively straightforward with it just being a broken lock leading to a race condition. Uh, in fact, one of the other things that Jan Horn points out here is something that would be nice to have is some kind of static analysis tooling uh, or like compile time checks just to check that the locking... Um, kind of follows the paradigm that was outlined in the driver because if you had something that would check the like locking compared to the data structure accessed here it would have been like fairly obvious if you had something that was looking for that um where i think this blog post is a lot more interesting is on the exploit dev side i really liked that trick of smashing page table entries in order to change like memory page permissions. I think that's a really cool attack. And it's a very useful attack because, like I said, going with this route, you don't have to do any leaking or chaining with any other bug, which is very valuable. Not having to rely on an info leak is huge. Um, and being able to bypass mitigations like CFI is also huge. So yeah, very impactful exploit. Fairly simple bug, though. Um, and that's that's yeah, why simple most bug, of the blog um, post is dedicated to defenses and the exploitation angle. Yeah, I mean, everything else that they went into on this one, I think, is what added a lot of value to the post. Not that having the exploit in there wouldn't have been valuable. And also, um, it was our ninth episode where we talked about the Morpheus chip. 
what was that like three years ago? <laughs> um, that was good, good while ago. It's actually it's old enough that it's not even on our website. There you go. Nice. Our site starts at episode twelve. <laughs> but all right, uh, so we'll move into our last topic uh, of the episode here, which is a Chrome in the wild bug analysis. Uh, this was a vulnerability in the garbage collector I use after free, which, as the author points out, is one of the most complicated components of the browser. As such, this is going to be a pretty heavy topic, and I'm going to do my best here, but I am mostly operating off of what I could read from the blog post because um, even though I've done a bit of browser exploitation, the garbage collector is something that I've often just treated as a black box. Um, it's not something that in most cases you need to know the intricate details of how it works, which is actually touched on in this post. Um, yeah, I mean, so, I this was um, I preferred this post over the last uh, Chrome bug that we covered, like last week's one, I think it was. Um, yeah, I thought it kind of explained things reasonably well i mean there are some issues part of that just on me for not doing a lot of browser exploitation oh that said to give a really really quick summary of it basically just comes down to having an object freed when it shouldn't have been obviously there's a ton more details to that (laughs) but um that's leaving a lot of nuance that is leaving a lot of nuance (laughs) but just so you know what we're trying to explain um as specter dives into it more like that's the big picture the really big picture of it is it loses track of some items and forgets to uh, mark them and ends up freeing them instead of marking them appropriately. I'll let you go on, though. I just wanted to give that big picture thing for anybody coming into it. Fair enough. So, yeah, where this is dealing with such a complex component, they have a lot of background information covering like how the garbage collector works. Um And you kind of need to know a little bit about how it works at a high level to understand the bug. Um, So for those not aware, browsers have garbage collection running to clean up any unused objects. Fairly standard um, in managed languages like this. And the way that the garbage collector works is at various intervals or when under memory pressure, it'll run this mark and sweep strategy where it'll check all the objects that are currently live, check for any strong references to them, uh, then mark them if any references are found. At the end of that uh, marking phase, any unmarked objects will get cleaned up and freed. Um, Now, obviously, there is more to the garbage collector than just the mark and sweep strategy. The blog post goes into some other things about what the garbage collector does, like um, so performance optimizations and concurrent marking. But those aren't really necessary for understanding the bug, um, though concurrent marking is relevant for stability of exploiting it. But I don't know how much we'll go into that. Um, But yeah, you'll note earlier that I said that it checks for objects in the mark phase for strong references. Um, And that kind of implies that there can be weak references, which there are. Um, There is a data structure called a weak map where you can store an object in the map without preventing it from being garbage collected. Um, I'm assuming this is like a performance thing. I'm I'm not totally sure. I meant to look into that a bit more, but I forgot to. Um, But anyway, in in that case, there's special handling required when running a GC pass. Um, And they call this relationship an ephemeron, and any key value pairs in this weak map are called ephemeron pairs. Um, so they have to be careful to ensure that ephemeron pairs with values that are reachable, in quotes, from other objects, aren't collected um, when, a, when a GC pass runs, or you can run into a use after free situation. Um, so because of that, weak maps maintain a hash table object, which when the garbage collector reaches that object and a key 
in the pair wasn't already found to be reachable, it would be queued to be checked later at the end of the cycle. Because until you reach the end of the GC cycle, it's really it's impossible to tell whether or not a value or a key could be reachable um, because they haven't processed all of the objects yet. So it's kind of a weird situation. It's a really hard case to handle. Um, so at the end of the cycle, it goes back through the discovered ephemeron pairs and tries to check for references. And, uh, and just to interrupt really quickly, uh, yep, I believe Amy or it's the end in chat uh, said it's useful for making caches. So kind of calling out where uh, the weak maps are useful. Be having a cache, it's going to anytime an object does get removed, it's going to automatically be removed from that weak map. Also, yeah, kind of makes sense for that use purpose. Okay, cool. Thank you. So that makes sense. Yeah. So at the end of the cycle, it goes back through the discovered ephemeron pairs and it tries to check for references. It does this in three stages. So the first stage processes the current ephemerons list that were already discovered, um, and it pushes entries assumed to be unreachable into the next ephemerons list. The second stage tries to discover any new ones, uh, any new ephemerons, and push those also into the next ephemerons work list. Um, and here it might discover some new ephemerons with something like uh, like an embedded weak map and its entries. Um, and then the third stage takes those newly discovered ephemerons and processes those. And it just continues to do that until no more objects are added. Um, but some of the objects in the second stage where it can discover those new ephemerons, um, those might have strong references to what were previously assumed to be unreachable ephemerons. And those values never get marked. So they can be erroneously collected by the garbage collector despite there still being strong references to it. Um, so the example the author gives is if you have two key value pairs where you have one which is a simple key value pair like just k1 and v1 uh, and a second one where the value is the key of the first value pair it's possible that that first pair is visited k1 and v1 are unmarked because they don't see any references and then when k2 uh, k1 is visited um, k1 will get marked but the value for k1 won't get marked so you kind of have this desync where the key for the first pair is marked but the value isn't so it ends up getting collected um, so the patch there was to make sure that if there were a non-zero number of objects processed when draining the work list, that they run another pass to ensure that the ephemeron semantics get applied. Um, there were some other complications in exploiting this bug. For one thing, they had to add an additional few key value pairs to the weak map due to there being uh, two rounds of ephemeron marking. Um, and the other thing was concurrent marking gets performed uh, prior to garbage collection. This one I can't really go into detail on because it, it goes pretty far out of scope of my understanding of the of the GC and it's and it's an optimization kind of thing, so it's bound to be really complicated. Um, but to account for the concurrent marking, they had to get creative with nesting weak map objects um, to change how like the graph, uh, the object graph looked to the to the engine. Um, even then, the bug is was still un, somewhat unreliable to trigger because you need your key value pairs in the desired order, which might not always be processed that way because of the nature of hash tables. Um, you'll remember like the way these key value pairs is tracked is through a hash table, that hash won't be deterministic. So there's a bit of RNG there. It depends on how, like what hash is calculated and in what order uh, your key value pairs are put into that table. Um, what this bug essentially provides though, if you are able to exploit it as a primitive is a very strong primitive. Um, it basically allows you to do a targeted use after free of any object in JavaScript that you want, because you can just store an object reference in a weak map, 
trigger garbage collection, and then pluck that reference back out. Um, from there, you can go the more known route of like UAFing the backing store of an array buffer and causing a type confusion there. Or you can use a trick of abusing how large JS arrays work, where the backing store for large uh, JavaScript arrays is allocated in this large object space heap, um, which is a separate heap from most other objects. And that's a special heap arena where you can get other objects allocated of different array types. So you can get an object array and an array of doubles allocated in the same space, use the, the UAF to cause an overlap. And once you have that type confusion, um, you can use your overlap with an array of doubles and an array of objects to get the game over primitives, um, being the ability to leak objects through the array of doubles or the ability to create objects by writing into the uh, array of doubles. Um, and you can use that access to the object array to retrieve the reference to those fake objects. And from there, it's pretty easy to get a read-write primitive. If you want to know more about that strategy, I don't want to cover it too much here because it is it does require some knowledge of how arrays and stuff in JavaScript work. But the attacking JavaScript engines uh, by Salo does a pretty good job of explaining it. Uh, att attacking JS engines, I believe, tunnels in on uh, WebKit specifically, but Chrome is also very similar. Like browsers in this area, there's not a lot of divergence in how um, arrays and stuff work. So I'll link that in chat for anybody who's interested. We'll put the link in the video as well. But yeah, if you want more details on that, the attacking JavaScript engines paper is a really good resource for that. But yeah, I mean, overall, a really complex vulnerability and a very hard to spot one um, because it's deep into an area that not a lot of people are looking into because it's just way easier to treat it as a black box even for security researchers doing browser research um, so yeah just a really hard to spot bug very complicated exploit not super stable because of the rng aspect to it um, but which makes it I'd interesting that it was curious. discovered in the wild a little bit but Oh, I'd be a little bit curious on the discovery aspect of this one, too. Um, just because, like you're saying, it is, it's a hard to rock area. Um, also kind of hard to fuzz. I mean, th there's probably some ways you get around fuzzing it, but it feels like one of those areas that would be a little bit difficult. I believe. Yeah, so um, Chrome like, did. Uh... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to also call out the fact that Project Zero also did a uh, RCA post on this bug. Yeah, um, so I was just about to reference that actually. Okay. Um, yeah. Because in their in the uh, in the in the wild post from Project Zero, um, their RCAs they do include a section on how they speculate that this vulnerability could have been found, and even they were kind of like. They suspected that it was manual review because it seemed harder to find this through fuzzing than it would be through manual review. But even they were kind of unsure because it's just such a um, such a deep and complicated bug. This is one of those bugs where you really need to understand the subsystem and how it works as a whole and how different parts interact with each other. It's not like a straight up like you know, there's an error path that frees this and then the function above that might use it or something. Like, it's not a straightforward use after free. It's a very complicated um, design level issue. Yeah, like, so. especially if, if you were to imagine getting just the crash report on this, trying to triage it. I could just would imagine how painful that would be. <laughs> yeah, it would suck. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, 
props to um like the, the researcher here for doing all of that legwork um because this yeah like you said this would be very hard to backtrack off of so yeah i do find it a little bit interesting that this was discovered in the wild just because like where that rng aspect is in it um with the hash table it doesn't seem like something you can easily control from an attacker's perspective which means the reliability and stability here seems like it would be somewhat low um so it's just kind of interesting to see that being used in the wild because you know whenever you have a crash um that's obviously not a good thing if you're trying to use a zero day because if that crash gets back to google like it did here um it can be you know discovered um it's, it's noisy so yeah a little bit interesting that the such a complex and uh hard to hit vulnerability was found in the wild but nonetheless i mean the vulnerability and the exploit here is really insane uh and as such like i hope i did a somewhat okay job of explaining the vulnerability and the internals there it is a it, like whenever we get these browser bugs that are deep in some complex component like turbofan or the garbage collector in this case it's really difficult to cover because it does require a lot of internal knowledge on the browser to fully appreciate and it's just really hard to convey that especially where i'm not a chrome researcher it's like a full-time thing so i'm kind of going off of what's written here too so i've been uh or I've been appreciating getting a bit more knowledge in that area through these posts, though, and through doing the podcast. Because we've had a few over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, ones that are that are a struggle to read through, but you learn a lot through doing so. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, Amy said, I find it less surprising that a hard-to-hit bug was found. So yeah, like on the one hand, the fact that it's less reliable, it makes sense that it was discovered um, with the crash report. On the other it seems interesting that someone would even bother trying to use it, I guess. I mean, I, mean, I guess when you're talking it. about a browser, like any bug is useful. I guess you're you're not going to be super picky on the reliability as much as you might be with some other targets. But yeah, it just seems interesting to me that such, an, such a zero day was even really deployed. But I mean, that's yeah, pure I mean, speculation that's... on my part. So yeah, I've never been involved with like that level of cyber operations to know how they make such a decision on uh on you know what's worth deploying or not so i'll leave it as obviously somebody did find the value in it yeah and sarsex suggested like maybe an underfunded state actor i mean yeah there's probably a lot of reasons out there why you would go with like a an exploit like this where it might not be super reliable but yeah i mean i i can only do some shallow speculation on that because yeah, I can't I can't jump into the mind of whoever deployed this <laughs> vulnerability and Google doesn't even seem to have information really on who deployed this. So you can't even can't even go too deep on that either. So but yeah, like jumping back on the technical details and stuff, very uh, interesting. The post, I think, was a little bit um, tougher to read than it could have been. I think they did go into some detail on like the concurrent marking and stuff where they didn't really need to, at least not before covering the vulnerability itself. Maybe when getting into the exploitation section, that might have been more relevant. But yeah, I, th I think it could have been written in a little bit more of an accessible manner. But I mean, I'm not going to fault the you know author on this one very much because like I said, when you're trying to cover such a complex bug, there's a lot of it's hard you, you got to make a lot of decisions on like how deep you want to go into a specific 
area and how much you want to assume the reader knows. Because um, if you try to include everything and make it accessible to anyone, even someone who hasn't looked at a browser, you're probably going to be looking at like a 20,000 word post. So, and that, that in its own right makes it kind of hard to read. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's tough to strike that balance. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually going to take it's the end makes uh, one good suggestion here. They needed more gifts, you know, just to break up the monotony of just this black on white text. So more gifts, more memes. I mean, especially when you're talking about the internal data structures and the hash table, I think a an image or a diagram would have been extremely useful there. So, yeah, that would have that would have helped a lot. But overall, it's still a good post. And, um, you know, if that if the vulnerability sounded interesting to you, I encourage you to check it out to get a more detailed understanding. That said, um, if you're not too familiar with the browser or like the garbage collector, it it might be difficult to jump into. You might have to do a lot of background research to appreciate it. But yeah, so that's pretty much all of our topics that we have. Um, we do have a shout out or two. Uh, we'll shout out FuzzCon Europe. That happened recently. Um, we watched a few of the talks out of it. I, I think I watched two talks. See, I think you watched, uh, you said it was like two or three. Yeah, I've um, watched a few more. Um, I'll give a shout out uh, specifically to the input languages for effective in focus fuzzing. I found that one pretty interesting. Um, just, just some ideas. I, it's basically about using like grammar based fuzzing. Um, and I will also shout out on the, not necessarily less positive side, but I saw API level fuzzing, how to harden your REST endpoints. And I thought that could be useful more for like, uh, even mentioning on our bounty podcast. Um, ultimately, it ended up being more of like a QA level testing thing. So it wasn't that interesting that I spent my time on. But I mean, it wasn't a bad talk, just not quite what I was hoping for. Yeah, so the talk that I thought I'd shout out is the libAFL talk, um, mainly because I think it's good if you're new to fuzzing and you want to learn a little bit about fuzzing infrastructure and how different components can work together. They have some really good slides talking about um, like how you would separate a fuzzer into modules, like how you would build a module, uh, a modular fuzzer, um, and that I think is like a really cool concept and you know, trying to abstract fuzzing into like a generalized um, concept. Like there were some useful slides there for sure. That said, if you're already somewhat versed in fuzzing and you're familiar with a fuzzer that already kind of uses that concept, you might not find it that interesting um, because a lot of the other part of the talk is like how to actually use libAFL specifically, which I mean, that makes sense. That is ultimately what their talk is about. Um, but if you're not looking into using libAFL or interested in what it offers, then, uh, you know, the second half of the talk might not be super interesting to you. But I think for beginners who want to learn stuff about fuzzing, that talk can be very useful, um, the first half of it. So yeah, I did want to give that a quick shout out. Um, yeah, there wasn't as many talks at, at FuzzCon Europe as I like initially thought there would be when I first started looking, but uh, it's a one you know, day, all of these talks are like a half hour. Yeah, yeah, somewhat smaller conference. Um, there might be some talks there that have interest to you. So we just wanted to shout that out, but yeah, there was nothing there that was super interesting to the point where we wanted to dedicate like a, you know, a long discussion to it. So yeah, just wanted to shout it out. 
Um, I think that pretty much concludes all of the shout outs uh, that we have. Uh, Z, I don't think you have, if you have anything more to add, I'll, oh, I'll let you shout out here, but all right, so we'll wrap it up. So thanks to everyone who tuned in. You can catch the VOD on Twitch or on YouTube at 8 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday. Uh, we also have previous podcasts up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and some more resources on Anchor. Um, feel free to join our Discord and follow us on Twitter. Uh, links for those are down below. I'll also link the Discord and chat. Uh, we'll be back next Monday for our bounty episode at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific, and next Tuesday at the same time uh, as today, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific for the binary episode, and we'll see you all then.